Thank you. Good morning. My name is Joe McLean. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm sorry about the accent. Let me show you, share with a quick story. I was speaking with Paulie Mike this morning. He was telling me that when they got together as a committee to decide who they would invite to come and speak to you men, they took out the readings for today and meditated upon them. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So Paulie Mike said, oh, this is easy. I just have to find my fool. I was sitting at the dinner table with my wife and my five kids when I heard that noise. Ding! I got mail. Now, my wife does not like me to check my mail on my phone while I'm eating. So I'm trying to keep my phone on the down low so she doesn't see what I'm doing. I open it up. Half a day, Joe. We want to invite you to Guam. I said, honey, you won't believe this. I just got invited to Guam. And they only want me to work half a day. <laughs> Polly Mike got his fool. I lovingly refer to myself as the Catholic hack because I am a passionate layman. I'm a convert to the church. And like the gospel reading for today, I found my treasure in a field and I sold everything to buy it. Because Jesus Christ came to visit me one day. When my marriage was on the verge of divorce, I had lost my job. I had nowhere to turn. Christ became very real to me very personal, very intimate. And he set a flame in my heart that burns to this day. And I realized that I am a fool. I know nothing. I have barely anything to offer him in return. So I have made a motto for myself, and I put it on my website, catholichack.com, to be the donkey upon which Jesus rides today. You see, in the Old Testament, God caused a, a donkey to speak for his purposes in the book of Numbers. In the book of Judges, the strong man Samson took nothing but the jawbone of a jackass and slayed thousands of Philistines with it. So I thought, hey, if God can do that much with nothing more than the jawbone of a jackass, imagine what he could accomplish with a complete jackass like me. (laughs) Brothers in Christ, Let's talk for a second about this man right here. You see, by virtue of the graces you received in the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, like it or lump it, believe it or not, you are called to be evangelists for Christ and His bride, the church. You are martyrs, which literally means witness. But before we talk about your witness, let's talk about his. They chained him. They beat him. They dragged him down the Mount of Olives across the Brook Kidron, and they stopped there. They found themselves a phenomenal opportunity. Look, here's some water. They threw him over the side, and they let him drown for a few minutes. 
gasping for breath, powerless to save himself unless he were to call down the legions of angels at his disposal, but not our Lord. And they yanked him up just in time. They hauled him off to Ananias and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. And Pilate, being the coward that he was, trying to stack the deck in his favor, trying to keep all of his options open, playing both sides, said, I will just have him scourged and then I will release him. And so they chained him to a pillar. And they took the cat of nine tails and they tore the flesh from his body. He lost so much blood, it would have killed any normal man. But our Lord came for a very specific purpose. And He would not die there. And so the angels ministered to Him. Then they placed the cross on His shoulder and they hauled Him through the streets of Jerusalem like cattle. Out to the Mount of Calvary, Golgotha. And there they nailed Him to the tree and they raised Him up in front of all men. Do you guys ever hear about that hiker out in the Arizona, New Mexico desert who got his hand caught between a boulder and a rock wall, was stuck for a few days? They made a movie about him a few years ago. Well, this guy realized he was going to die. And so he had to make a choice. I can either die here or I can cut off my hand and go for rescue. Well, the flesh on his hand had become so decayed, it turned black and it was already dying. So he figured, well, what do I have to lose? So he pulls out his knife and he begins to chop away at the blackened flesh. And he was doing okay, believe it or not, until he got down to this wrist. And through this wrist is a bundle of nerves. And when he exposed the nerves, the very weight of the still air caused so much intense pain that he passed out. When he came to, he still had the same question. The job is not finished. I have a choice. I can sit here or die, or I could chop off the rest of this hand and I can get moving. So he took his knife, placed it underneath the wrist, took a deep breath, and he ripped up! He said the pain was so intense, so pure, so carnal, he can't even begin to imagine or explain it to us. It was through this wrist and through this bundle of nerves that our Lord was nailed. And so he's there, having had a bush of thorns, one and a half inches long. I have a set at my house from the Holy Land. It's incredible to see. An entire bush, according to the research done on the Shroud of Turin, an entire bush that they wrapped on his head, held in place with a rope, and then beat him with reeds so these thorns penetrated his skull into his brain. Again, losing so much blood, the pain so intense, it would have killed an average man. And there he is hanging on the cross, bleeding from all over. Every wound causing such agony. And then his lungs begin to fill with fluids. You see, they drowned on the cross. They drowned in their own bodily fluids. And in order to to even breathe, 
you have to lift yourself up on those nails. Enduring the pain of those nerves running through that wrist. And because the Romans were especially cruel and they especially enjoyed inflicting such cruelty, they also impaled their victims on the cross. So our Lord is there hanging naked. You see, our crucifix takes our sensitivities in mind. And so we are actually kept from seeing what those saw that day at the foot of the cross. Imagine the humiliation. The king of the universe, naked, impaled, bleeding, dying, drowning, as they mock him, as they jeer him, as they utter blasphemies against him. He who spoke you into existence, hanging on the cross. Let's back up to the night before. He's there in the garden. And thank you to blessed Catherine Ann Emmerich for her, vis- her visions that give us a lot of detail. We know that our Lord was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he became, became very sorrowful and weeping. Now as a man, this used to bother me. How can God be so weak? Why cry? You're God. But our Lord loves you so much that he took upon flesh and dwelt among us. That he became exactly like you in all humanity except sin. He glorifies agony by experiencing it with you. But there, according to the visions of blessed Catherine Ann Emmerich, we know that the devil taunted him as he cried out, Father, let this cup pass from me. Put not my will, thy will be done. And the devil whispered into his ear, How could you die for them? Don't you know what they will do to you? Don't die for them, they're not worth it. He will betray you. Don't you know what he will do this very night when he gets the opportunity? Pornography, lust, anger, drunkenness, violence. Don't you know what's in that man's heart? Don't die for him. Don't you know, Jesus, that I will nail you to a tree? How could you die for him? Jesus says, Father... Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And when the horde came out to arrest him, he doesn't hide in a bush. He goes out to meet them. Whom are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego a me, he says. I am. If you do not see a man in Christ, rehear those words. I wonder if I would have the courage to stand up to a horde, come out to arrest me, and say, who do you look for? I'm right here. Come get me. Ego a me, he says. He is the I am. That is God himself. St. Peter, in his exuberance, whips out his sword to fend off our Lord. Oh, man, that inspires me. I want to be that kind of man. What does Jesus say? Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me to drink? Would you prevent me from going to the cross? 
I have come for this purpose. You will not stop me. Because the devil may accuse you, but I stand and I witness for you. I stand up for you when the devil accuses you. I vouch for you when the devil says you aren't worth it. And when the devil says I have to go to a cross to make that witness, may God's will be done. So they hauled him there. And our Lord is there hanging, drowning in his own bodily fluids. Most people, according to the historical records, they would pull themselves up on those nails to take a deep breath only to utter the worst blasphemies ever heard. It was actually a very common trait. Most people were so bitter, so angry, so succumbed to their own sinfulness that the only thing they could do was just rage. Our Lord stood in absolute contrast to that. At the pillar, while being whipped, and there on the cross, he hauls himself up on these nails, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine the pain to utter those words for you. He also gives you his mother. He also consummates the Holy Eucharist when he says, I thirst, and then proclaims, It is finished. Tell Telestai, it is finished. What is finished? It's the Passover. It's the Holy Eucharist that he has given to you. The bread which comes down from heaven that gives you life. So the devil stood there and pointed his finger at you and said, Jesus, he's not worth it. He's not worth it. And Jesus said, he is worth it and I die for him. That's the kind of Lord you have. Never afraid to witness for you. Never afraid to stand up for you. Never afraid to go to the cross for you. It reminds me of John chapter 12. Our Lord is there preaching to those crowds. And two Greeks come to see Jesus. And they see Philip and Andrew and they say, we want to see Jesus. So Philip and Andrew are like, okay. And they go see Jesus. Jesus, there's a couple of Greeks here to see you. My hour has come for the Son of Man to be handed over to the Gentiles and to be glorified. Whoa, time out, Jesus. It's a little, you know, it's a little, a little too much. All he said was two Greeks are to see you. What is all this our stuff, all this glorified stuff? I mean, you have an audience. What's, what gives? Jesus immediately goes into saying that unless a grain of wheat should fall into the earth and die, it shall remain alone. But if it dies, it shall bear much fruit. Brothers in Christ, I know what the fruit of a mango tree looks like. I know what the fruit of an apple tree looks like. I'm not so sure I know what the fruit of a grain of wheat looks like. What is the fruit of a grain of wheat but bread? 
And this fruit, this grain must go into the earth. It must die. And then it bears its fruit. What is that fruit, brothers in Christ? But the Holy Eucharist. Our Lord said in that same chapter, John 12, And I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this I have come. This is my purpose. He came to give you life. To have life in abundance and full. He came to give you His body, blood, soul, and divinity. True heavenly food come down from heaven. Because you and I, brothers in Christ, are on a journey in the wilderness. We are headed to the promised land. Like the Israelites in the book of Exodus, who had miracle bread come down from heaven, how much more Jesus Christ gives us His body and His blood as food for this journey. Witnessing to you in front of all men. And there is the good thief standing by his side, nailed also to a tree, also drowning in his own bodily fluids. Only he witnesses for Christ. Leave him alone, he says. This man does not deserve this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If only I could be like that good thief. If only I had the courage in the face of all of those people who did nothing but blaspheme our Lord. Had the courage to witness for Him when Christ is so gallantly witnessing to me. Despite all my faults and sins, Jesus Christ witnesses to me. I want to be the good thief. I want to be the donkey upon which Jesus rides today. You see, brothers in Christ... We've often heard that St. Francis said, preach the gospel always and sometimes use words. Well, actually, St. Francis didn't say those words. He said something close to it. But he's right. You are to live the gospel. Do you? When you're with your friends, are you living the gospel? Do your friends look at you and say, I believe in Jesus Christ because I see you. Because I see how you act. I see how you love. I see how you treat other people. I see how you treat yourself. I see how heroic you are. How self-sacrificing you are. And so because I see you, I see Jesus. I know there is a God because I see you. Is that the kind of witness you're living? I can't say that for myself. Only you can answer for you. But brothers in Christ, the time comes. God gives you opportunities when you must use words. But do we? Are we up for that? You know, when I had my conversion, I felt God calling me to witness for Him. But I was scared. I was so ashamed of myself. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't even want to pray in front of my wife. Because I was afraid she'd think I was a fool. Because I didn't know what to say to God. You see, my wife was begging for authentic masculine leadership. 
My wife wanted nothing more than me to just try. She wasn't looking for perfection, thankfully. She was looking for effort. So, I sucked it up. I gathered the courage and I just prayed. And I sounded like a babbling fool. And I still do. But the more I did it, the more grace God gave me. And then I realized, we have to take an inventory. You know, God gives every single one of us aptitudes, skill sets, talents. Every single one of you does something very well. Do you use that for the glory of God? That's why you have it. Oh, you might think it's going to make you a lot of money. You probably think you're going to be the top in your field someday. An expert at this or that. Maybe you're a lawyer, a doctor. Maybe you're an engineer. Maybe you cut grass, but you're the best at it. Do you use that for the glory of God? Because that's why you're good at that. It's not to make you a lot of money, although you can. But primarily, it's to glorify God. So I had to take an inventory. What am I good at? Not much. That's the problem. (laughs) But what little I had, I, I just decided to give it over to God. And so I started praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, if you want me to witness to you, then you're going to have to give me what I need because I can't do it on my own. I I don't possess it. I was working in a corporate environment at the time. I was scared. I was like, oh, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. This is going to be so embarrassing. I'm going to embarrass you, Lord. I started by wearing a miraculous medal on my ties. I had to go to a lot of business lunches. And I would pray before every meal. And sometimes it was really awkward because they were talking about this or that, throwing, you know, F-bombs and all kinds of foul language. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, Lord, what am I doing? This is really going to be painful. And I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I start praying and these people would just be looking at me like, oh, he's one of them. Well, God is funny in how he works. He works in miraculous ways, right? My boss at the time is a fallen away Catholic. Divorced his wife. Married his secretary. And God sends the two of us on business trips. You know, and I'm like cringing. Oh, no. He's going to ask me about the faith. And lo and behold, we have many conversations. He was bothered. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew the choice he made was not consistent with the gospel, with the church's teaching. I was scared to death to witness to my boss. But I'm scared more of disappointing him who would die for me on that cross. So suck it up, Joe. Be a man. It's not like it's nails through your palms. It's just embarrassing if you sound like a fool. But you can take a little humiliation, can't you? So I did. I witnessed to him. I planted little seeds. And he was receptive to it. I realized I can't convert anybody in the process. I can merely be an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit... And that was more satisfying than you can even imagine. 
I'm not responsible for success. I'm responsible for effort. I'm responsible for attitude. I give God my yes. What he does with it is his business. So brothers in Christ, I want to encourage you today. I want to fan the flame of your heart. I want you to look at that crucifix there and I want you to see him who witnessed for you. And I want you to ask yourself, who do you say that he is? When the doorbell knocks and there's maybe a Jehovah's Witness at your door or a Mormon or a Baptist or someone else, not Catholic. Maybe somebody comes up to you and asks you, are you saved? Are you born again? Do you cower from that moment? Do you, uh, blah, well, um, no, I'm Catholic. Brothers in Christ, you are the Christians. You are the original Christians. So I'm going to give you a very quick, brief run through sacred scripture to show you the design of our Lord's church. Because I want you to feel empowered the very next time you encounter a non-Catholic who comes up to you and says, you know, where do you Catholics find all of that baggage in scripture? You know, Mary and the saints, the Pope. What is this Eucharist stuff? Sacraments? I mean, I don't believe in religion. I believe in relationship. Have you ever heard that? How many people saw that video on YouTube just last week? That guy was very talented. His talents were amazing. This is a young man. He was gifted with this ability to rhyme and and the video was exceedingly well produced. It was a wonderful video with the exception of his message being so horribly wrong. Saying, I believe in relationship. But Jesus hated religion, he said. Is that true? Does Jesus hate religion? I mean, if this man is right, then what are we doing? It's just me and Jesus. I don't need this church. I don't need the Bible even. If it's just me and Jesus, what am I doing with the Bible? If it's me and Jesus, I don't need prayer. And I don't need you praying for me. It's me and Jesus. Why don't you leave us alone? I had that conversation a couple of months back. I was flying to Wyoming, getting ready to speak at a men's conference out there. I got on a plane, and I was trying to mind my own business. I didn't want to have a protracted conversation with the seatmate. So I had my stuff out, and I'm trying to get focused and get busy and look busy. And this gentleman next to me, he said, uh, what are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm just preparing some talks. He saw my Bible. About what? Well, uh, I'm going to talk about the Bible. Oh, are you a pastor? I said, no, I'm a late Catholic evangelist. He had this look on his face like he had gas. I mean, what is a lay Catholic evangelist? Oh, I, I witness to the Catholic faith. I empower and I equip other Catholics to learn their faith and share their faith with people like you. 
Well, uh, well, like what? Oh, okay. Uh, and I had to, at that very moment, say to myself, all right, Lord. You know, I was hoping to be focused, Lord. I was hoping to spend this time preparing for my talk. But as you wish, Lord, I'll spend this time with him. May it be done according to your will. So I spent the next 45 minutes and I laid it all out for him. I went through Mary and the saints, the Pope, the purgatory, bishops, priests, and deacons. I laid it all out for him. The early church fathers, I gave him one of my best apologetics I'd given anybody. And at the end of that 45 minutes, he said to me, and I waited with bated breath. I was waiting for, you know, something like, how do I become Catholic? You know what he said? He said, well, that was entertaining. Oh, oh. You don't tell that to a lay Catholic evangelist. I mean, I'm working for a set of steak knives here. I don't want to hear entertaining. I want to hear profound, life-changing. But then he said to me, I don't believe in religion. I believe in personal relationship. And I said, bingo, exactly. That's exactly what the Catholic Church teaches. Again, he had never heard that in his entire life. I said, we have a personal, intimate relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, we forget that. We forget that. Let me give you an example. Imagine. Imagine I was the personal friend with the President of the United States. I mean, this is a powerful man. If I were to get myself into some serious trouble, he could bail me out. He could redeem me. But I'm his personal friend. I can text him whenever I want. I can call him on his private cell phone and have intimate conversation. It's just me and the president. Could I, therefore, for instance, show up to the White House whenever I wanted? Could I just decide to barge in on the Oval Office whenever I felt inclined to? Maybe I would just run upstairs to the private residence and butt in between him and the First Lady. Excuse me? It's me and the President? I don't think so. I'm willing to bet the Secret Service may have some issues with his personal friend just showing up whenever he wanted. I'm sure the First Lady may have a problem with me running up to the private residence and just butting in. How much more our relationship with the king of the universe? You see, in democratically elected countries, we have lost all notion of what it means to serve a good king. We don't like our elected officials. Well, (laughs) we'll elect someone else. Thank you. Have a good day. You don't re-elect Jesus Christ. You serve him. And you don't serve him because you have to. You serve him because you want to. You serve him because you love to. He doesn't make you a slave. He makes you a son. So Jesus is a king. He sits on a throne. Or rather, he's nailed to one. Well, kings have courts. Courts have ministers. Courts have procedures. Does Jesus have all of these things? 
You know, I've often heard in my conversations with non-Catholics that they believe in the mystical body of Christ. And to be sure, so do we, but we don't mean the same things. When they say mystical body of Christ, and by they I'm speaking in only general terms, you can't speak for the 30,000 plus varieties that are out there. But to sum them up, they speak of it as a, a sort of an intangible body of Christ. One you can't feel, one you can't taste, one you can't touch, one you can't measure, but simply includes anybody and everybody who claims to believe in Jesus Christ. The Mormons believe they're a part of the body of Christ, yet they don't believe in the divinity of Christ. Well, how does that work? I mean, doesn't God have a say in who gets to be a part of his body? Does God have a say in how he is worshipped? Can we really not discern what the body looks like, what it feels like, what, how it's made up. Is there no place for us to turn to determine its exact dimensions and characteristics? I will use only sacred scripture to demonstrate to you that you can. Why? Because nine times out of ten, that will be a conversation you will have to have someday. My goal here is to merely give you the design. I don't expect you to memorize it. But I want you to be empowered, to feel confident that you are in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that through love and zeal for souls, you want the salvation of your non-Catholic brothers and sisters. And so you want to witness to Christ, for Christ, to the whole world. Because he was willing to witness for you. You whom he calls friends. No longer servants, but friends. What kind of man are you that you would not witness for a friend? So let's look. Can we, can we measure Christ's kingdom? What kind of kingdom does he possess anyway? Can we even know that? Well, brothers in Christ, we need to be ready. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within, but to do so in gentleness and with reverence. So it's your duty to be ready. It's your job to be prepared for that opportunity when the Holy Spirit will use you as an instrument for God's glory. If we were to turn to St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, there we would see a beautiful encounter with an angel and Our Lady. And it's a very specific scene because... The angel Gabriel, he's made a few visits and stopovers in the Bible. But this one, he goes to visit Our Lady, little town of Nazareth, and he says to her some very, very specific words. He says, quote, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, quote, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There's three things and just those two verses that give you the clue as to understanding the very kingdom that Jesus bore. Did you know the most talked about topic in all of the gospels by Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God? He talks about that more than anything else. The kingdom of God. And you can find out what this kingdom is just in those three things. Son of God. Son of David. Possessing the king and the throne 
of David forever. Now, here in 2012, we read these things and we go, I don't know what that means. If we were first century Jews, though, fireworks would be going off. This would be earth shattering. They might even have a heart attack and die. Why? What is so profound about those three things? Because the first century Jew would have known exactly and immediately that that was related to 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God swore a covenant oath between him and David, promising that his son, Solomon, would be both the son of David and the son of God. And he would give him the throne and the kingdom of David forever. You see, David had the longest running kingdom, the longest running dynasty anywhere on the planet at any time in history. There were more sons of David's sitting on the throne uncontested than in any other culture on the entire planet. You can name anybody, China, Russia, it doesn't matter. The son of David sat on the throne in Jerusalem longer than any other. And then one day, Nebuchadnezzar brought his army to bear on Jerusalem and devastated it, tearing the temple down to the ground and hauling its king, the son of David, off in chains, never to be seen or heard again. So if you're a first century Jew, you're asking yourself, well, golly gee, do his Lord there, you know, you promised us a king forever. Those were your words, not mine, Lord. So it's been 500 years and there's no son of David sitting on our throne. What, what gives, Lord? Did you not mean it? Maybe you didn't see that coming. Maybe you weren't aware of Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. I mean, I can understand. I mean, if you don't have Google on your side, how do you know these things are coming, really? Do we really believe God is so unknowing that he didn't know about Nebuchadnezzar and his army? Did he really not know that there wouldn't be a son of David to sit on that throne after he made that promise? He did. And the first century Jews were anxiously awaiting for the fulfillment and the restoration of that promise. You see, the very same angel, Gabriel, he paid another visit to Daniel back in the the book of the prophecy of Daniel. Well, one day Daniel was in Babylon and he's praying at the three o'clock hour. It's the very hour that there should have been a sacrifice going on in the temple in Jerusalem, but there was no temple because of Nebuchadnezzar destroying it. So he's there in Babylon. He's facing towards Jerusalem and he's praying at this hour, asking God to reestablish the people in the Holy Land, to reestablish the temple of God, and then bam! All of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up. David falls on his face. Peace be with you, the angel says. In Daniel 9, he goes on to give him the very prophecy of when the Messiah would come, reestablishing the temple and setting the captives free. It would be in the fourth kingdom. Just so happens that fourth kingdom was the empire of Rome. And so in the first century, there was a fever pitch of messianic activity. Because why? They knew Daniel's prophecy. They knew the time had come for the Messiah to come. And so everybody and their four brothers wanted to be the Messiah. They all wanted to be the hero that would toss out the Romans, reestablish the the true sacrifice in the temple. 
And then this angel who gave that prophecy fulfills it with Our Lady, saying that her son would be this Messiah. And he wouldn't reestablish the building, but his body would be the temple. So that's why it's important and impactful for a first century Jew. So what does that tell us on our little journey through scripture? We know that Jesus possesses the kingdom of David. Well, we have lots of data on the kingdom of David. We can go back. We can research. We can see what the kingdom of David was like. We can see it, taste it, smell it, touch it, discern it, measure it. We have all kinds of data. So let's go back. Let's go see what was the kingdom of David like really quick. Solomon is instituted king while his father was still alive in order to prevent a palace coup from his older brother. So Solomon is set up as the king. And what does Solomon do? Solomon starts to institute his court. And what's interesting about that is, if we go back to the first book of the first Kings, chapter 4, verse 7, we read, quote, Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Twelve officers. You see, Solomon was given the gift of wisdom from God. So he's no fool. And so Solomon reinstitutes an ancient office amongst the Israelites. It's the office of the twelve princes. If we were to go back even further into Exodus chapter 24, we would see there a structure in place. Moses complaining to God that he can't manage all of these stiff-necked wild people in the wilderness all by himself, is given a structure by God. He is first, then he has three closest to him. Aaron, Adab, and Abihu. And then after those three come the twelve princes, Exodus chapter 24. Moses is preparing to swear and mediate a covenant between God and man. And so Moses takes these twelve princes... And he sets up an altar. And he sets up 12 pillars. And these 12 men offer sacrifice on these 12 pillars. Moses captures their blood in silver and gold basins. And then he takes the blood and then he sprinkles it on the altar. And then sprinkles it on the people. Swearing a covenant oath between God and man. Saying the words, Behold, the blood of the covenant. So Solomon takes this office of the 12 princes... And he reestablishes it in the kingdom of David. And what do they do under Solomon? Their job is to be officers over Israel and to feed the people of the house of God. But Solomon makes them provide the food, them provide the bread. Okay, that's clear enough. Does Jesus have 12 princes in his kingdom? I mean, he is supposed to be the new son of David, right? I mean, isn't that what Luke chapter 1 was all about? So do we see in Jesus these 12 princes, these 12 officers? Well, for instance, in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 13 through 19, Jesus calls to himself 12 men, naming them. Okay. Well, that's pretty easy, but do these... 12 men have the same job as the 12 under Solomon. Do they feed the people of the house of the king? Well, let's take a look. If we turn to Matthew chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. 
And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, to the twelve. And the twelve, the disciples, gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. In John's Gospel, after he fed the people in the wilderness through the twelve, they wanted to make him king. And so he hid himself. Because they recognized that this is what a king does. This is what Caesar did in Rome. In order to win the favor of the mob, he brought out bread. But Jesus, being one greater than all the rest, gives the food that he provides to his twelve. And the twelve feed them. And the twelve take up the extra in the baskets. So question, if you want to go and eat the bread of the king, the one greater than Solomon, where do you go? How do you get this bread? Do you go straight to Jesus? Is it just you and Jesus? Does Jesus give you this bread personally? Or do you have to go through his twelve? Okay, so we see 12 disciples and they're feeding the people because they're serving as officers over the people in the king's court. They're his ministers. It's not their job. I mean, it's not their food. It's his food. They're providing it to you. All right, but what about that whole 12-pillar sacrifice thing? I mean... Do we really believe that these 12 apostles are priests here in the New Testament? I mean, where is their sacrifice? What offering are they making? Well, Jesus himself evokes Exodus 12 in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, starting in verse 19, quote, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There are several things that are very important in this. Number one, do this in remembrance of me. The Greek word for remembrance is anamnesis. Now, you don't have to remember that, but just know But that Greek word is very precise. It is linked to liturgical sacrifice in the temple. Luke knows this. Luke is using it to prove a point. Because the very next line about the cup being poured out, brothers in Christ, the only thing that gets poured out in the covenant with God and man is in the temple with sacrifice. When you kill an animal, its blood is poured out into a basin, and then the priest takes that and then pours it out onto the altar. So what is the sacrifice that he is commanding his twelve? Evoking the very same words Moses uses in Exodus 24. Behold, the blood of the new covenant. These twelve are priests. I could speak over an hour on that point alone. There is so much data showing that these twelve were priests that it is overwhelming and beautiful. The washing of the feet, the whole, I'm going to my father's house and he has many mansions. All of that is priestly language. So Jesus, 
He, in fact, does have his 12 princes, like Solomon. In fact, those princes, which are greater than Solomon's, not only feed the household of the king, but with the bread which the king provides, unlike Solomon. And these 12, like Moses, are priests. And they offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, who says, this is my body. Now, I don't know about you, but... If I believe that man to be God, and if he says, I am truth itself personified, then I'm going to believe him. I take him for his word. And so the next person who says, you know, how can you believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? I mean, it doesn't look like flesh. It don't taste like blood. And I say, yay and amen, because I don't know too many men who would be eating flesh and drinking blood if it tasted and looked like that. But God in his infinite uh, wisdom and mercy for you, he allows you to perceive bread and perceive wine when it isn't. So that you will eat and you will have life within you and he will raise you up on the last day, John chapter 6. So those are the 12 princes. Okay. Well, every dog gets it right at least once. What else? What else can we discern from the kingdom of Solomon and the kingdom of David? I mean, was there anything else there that we might be able to check out? Well, there was another ancient custom that was very, very uh, common in most ancient Near Eastern cultures. It's called the office of the Al-Habait. Literally translated, the over the house. This was the second person in command in the entire kingdom. Second only to the king himself. Well, Solomon takes a nod from the Egyptians. And he sets up his own Al-Habait. We see this referenced in Isaiah 22. Where the Lord sends Isaiah to his Al-Habait, the over the house called Shebna. And says, you have done wicked. And I'm going to take away your authority. And I'm going to give it to Eliakim, my servant. I will take your royal robes. And I'll put them on him. I'm going to take your girdle. And I'm going to put it on him. And I'm going to establish his authority. That was yours. And I'm going to give him the keys of the kingdom. And whatever he binds is bound. Whatever he loosed is loosed. This man will become the father to the inhabitants of the people. The Al-Habait. Does Jesus have an Al-Habait? If we were to turn to Matthew 16, Jesus enters into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Google it. Caesarea Philippi. You'll see pictures of a giant rock face. And on the side of this rock is a temple that Philip built to offer sacrifice to honor Caesar in Rome as a god. And next to it is a giant hole with a pit that the local people thought was the gate to the... uh, to hell, the gate of Hades. And so Jesus takes his 12 and he stands before this and says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up. He says, you are the son of God. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say, you are Kepha, rock. And on this Kepha, rock, I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is bound and whatever you loose on earth is loosed. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is the foundation upon which Jesus builds this church. 
and his 12 ministers are offering the sacrifice of his body, blood, soul, and divinity to feed you as their shepherd. See the design, men. Solomon also had one other office. It was called the office of the Gibirah, or the queen. Guess what? Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Who do you think got to be queen? Could you imagine the infighting that would go on between all the wives? Civil war would break out. And in fact, it did. Thanks to his wives, Solomon ends up falling into pagan idolatry. But the queen was his mother. The Gibirah, the queen, the great lady. Her office stood until the Babylonian exile in 597 BC. Jeremiah the prophet was sent by God to tell both the queen and the king that they would be cast down and hauled off. But Bathsheba, the queen, when her son is made king, she enters into his court to intercede on behalf of his brother. What does Solomon do? He stands up from his throne and he bows to her. And he has a throne brought in to the chamber and sat at his right side. And she sat. And her job was to intercede on behalf of the people to her son, the king, the Gibirah. Does Jesus have a Gibirah? Does he have his own great lady? Oh, you, you people are from Guam. You should know that you have a great lady. Is she not your patron? Is she not on top of that pillar at your cathedral, your minor basilica? Do you not find her off your shores? Is she not interceding for you at this moment? When the angel visits with her, as we wrap up here, when the angel visits with her in Luke 1, he says, Behold, as I paraphrase, Kekare tomene, Hail, full of grace. This is a unique word, brothers in Christ. Unique. It means she was always full of grace. She is now full of grace. She will always be full of grace. He uses this word like it's a title. Notice Mary is not bothered by the look of the angel like everybody else in Scripture. She's bothered by the greeting. Why? Because she is humble. And humble people don't like to be made ostentatious. And she realized that she has been chosen, the handmaid of God, the great lady, the Gibirah. Revelation chapter 12, St. John says, Behold, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Revelation 12 goes on to tell us she intercedes on behalf of the people to her son, the king. She is your mother. So Jesus Christ, one greater than Solomon, has 12 princes who are priests, has the Al-Habait in St. Peter, the very foundation and bedrock of this church. The Bible says the pillar and bulwark of truth is the church. You want the truth? You go to the, you go to the king's ministers. You want to be fed by the king's bread? You go to the king's ministers. Brothers in Christ, rest assured you are in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that man up there witnessed for you. He shed blood for you. When the devil taunted him and said, don't die for them. He said, I will die. They deserve it. They are my sons. They are my brothers. They are my friends. 
I give them my body, my blood, my soul and divinity. I give them my mother. What kind of a man are you? Who do you say that he is? When that doorbell rings, will you answer it? When your friends make fun and take your Lord's name in vain, your king, will you answer it? When David, a boy, faced Goliath, the Philistine, when the entire Israelite army was too scared to go out and face this man, David said, well, you know what? I'd be afraid too if it wasn't for that man blaspheming God. But somebody's got to make him pay. So he takes three stones and he goes out and faces the giant. And he comes out the victor because he trusted in God. He knew he didn't have a chance against that man. But God is good. Scott Hahn the other day wrote on his Facebook page, Don't tell God how big your storms are. Tell your storm how big your God is. Brothers in Christ, ask yourself who you want to be today. God sent no plan B into Guam. You're it. If this island is going to serve the greatest God in the universe, it will be because of your witness in your house, in your job, on these streets, in your school, on the internet, and everywhere in your life. Don't leave your faith in this room. You take it with you out those doors and you become Christ's martyrs, his witnesses in this world. Amen? Amen. Now go and serve him. Thank you.